everyone, and welcome to the Screen Strong Families podcast, bringing you the best solutions for parents who are serious about eliminating screen conflicts in their home. This is Melanie Hempy, and if you are new, we are so glad you found us. And to everyone else, welcome back. We are in for another treat today. Before we get started, though, I wanted to share just a little story. Um, you know how I like to do this. I just have these little things that happen since I I have these teenagers in my house. And I, you know, I get a lot of questions from our Facebook group, and that's Screen Strong Families, if you need to join that Facebook group. Just a lot of questions around what do your kids do that, you know, because they don't have screen, they don't have video games and they don't have smartphones. We have a TV and we have computers, so we're not screen free, but we are toxic screen free. So what do they do if they don't play video games and they don't have smartphones? And I thought about this yesterday because of what happened yesterday. So let me just tell you. So the boys went to school. Then of course they had their cross country practice right after school. And then they went on to a violin lesson and on their way home, which was now by this point, probably around eight o'clock, they're, they're coming home. They're driving home. Yes, they're driving. They decided to stop over at the soccer game from our, our school was playing another school and that other school was on their way home. So they stopped. And when they came home, I, you know, I said, Oh, you guys are a little late. You know, what did you do? Oh, we stopped by the soccer game. And the reason why this hit me so hard last night was because I realized that one interest leads to other interests. And what I mean by that is when you take these games out of your house in these distracting, mind-boggling screens away from your kids, they do other things. And one thing leads to another. So I guess that was my big takeaway last night. I was realizing this isn't hard at all because it sort of does itself, if you know what I mean. So we took away the trigger of the video game and now they, they fill their time and one thing leads to another. So what happened at the game was they started talking to their friends and then they made plans, you know, for later in the week. And so it all kind of had it mushrooms or whatever. It kind of has this really cool effect. And so the first layer of defense, if you don't want your kids addicted to screens is like it is for any other addictive thing. So if you don't want your kids to drink alcohol, then don't buy it for them. If you don't want them to smoke pot, then don't let them bring it in the house or buy that either. If you don't want them to get hooked on porn, then don't buy them a subscription to Playboy or a smartphone. Don't buy either of those things. And the chances will be a lot less. If you don't want to argue about video games, then don't allow them. I know that just seems too good to be true, but it is. And what will happen is the rest will take care of itself. If you want them to enjoy sports and art and people and music and reading, then you do those things and then they do more of those things. So one thing leads to another. And I am so excited today to continue this discussion with one of my very dear friends. And I just have to say that the book Wired Child is our book of the month this month. But I just want to tell y'all that Richard was one of my first very best friends in the screen world. <laughs> and I know he remembers and I remember the phone calls because whenever I would read a book, I would just call the author and say, I need to know you. Will you be my friend? Because I was struggling so much. But I just want to tell y'all that this book, Wire Child, was the first book that we used in the book club that we started 
at our school. And I would order these things in bulk. And we started with the moms around third, fourth, fifth grade, and we would all get together. There were about 10 of us. And I just want to recommend that if you are in our Screen Strong community and you want to start a, a group in your area, this is the book to start with. It is so good because it goes over so many different aspects. It doesn't just focus on one thing and the way he writes is just fabulous. So welcome, Richard, to our show. Melanie, thank you so much. I totally remember when we first met, I was reading some tech promoting article from somebody who you know, was industry connected probably and just laying it on thick about how uh, parents should turn their kids loose with screens. And then down there at the bottom is somebody commenting. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's like, that that's the best voice I've ever heard. Who, who is this person? And that was you. Yes, so, I remember um, that. And I reached out to you and I said like, oh my gosh, where are you from? And what's the deal? And that was like a decade ago or so. Yes. I remember that now. I was, I was doing the rare thing, commenting on a dumb article. <laughs> that- well, it was so bad that you had to, somebody had to say something. Somebody had to do it. And I didn't normally do that back then, but I remember exactly. This is so funny that you just brought that up. Yeah, I remember that. And you and Screen Strong have always had such a great science-based, fact-based, not industry PR stuff that so much deceives parents. So I so much appreciate all that you and Screen Strong do. Oh, thank you. Well, you've got to know you're a big piece of our puzzle over here. So <laughs> you got me on the right track. I got your book. I, I met you. We talked. I remember all that. And then, of course, since then, you've been to our conferences and have been the speaker at some of our conferences. And I've seen you all around the country as we go and get more educated. But I think now, Richard, I think you and I have this figured out. I do. I think we got it figured out. And I think that your book nailed it back in 2000. When was this? 15? When you wrote this? You knew back then. I mean, and you know, the funny thing is, is that the truth never changes. Everything you wrote in here is still as true today (laughs) as it was back then. I just want to say, you know, my dad reached out to me the other day because just in this past week, you know, the truth starts to come out. The Facebook files, just all that research getting released to the Wall Street Journal, that hidden stuff that Facebook is holding on to about Instagram. And my dad was nice enough to say, like, you called this. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm like, it, 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 and if you work with kids, because I'm a clinical psychologist in practice and have done so, gosh, way too long, coming up on 22 years. just makes me feel old. I'm blessed about what I can do. (laughs) And and the other thing coming out with the the Chinese government setting um, limits, limits on their, you know, protecting their own kids while kids in America are going to fall further behind. But like, it's just, yeah, science doesn't change. I love what you have to say. I love what Screen Strong brings. You've always had that. And thank you for actually talking facts and talking the truth. You're welcome. And I, and I think both of us, you know, aren't afraid of the truth. And I, and, and that's what I like about you in this book and just knowing you over all these years is that, you know, you don't back down and you don't compromise and you don't moderate toxic stuff. And um, I just love it. I mean, you were saying back here, you know, delay smartphones through high school. Like through, you know, that's what we've been saying too. And most people are just kind of scared to say that. It's kind of the whole emperor has no clothes. Like, yeah. you know, this, can somebody actually say what we all know really and see for ourselves or are we just too scared to say it? I use that analogy all the time. In fact, just recently brought that up again in one of my blogs, you know, the emperor 
<laughs> doesn't have any clothes. <laughs> and we are like those little kids in the audience saying, wait a minute, somebody's got to say the truth because we are losing our kids. And I love the way you say that. It's really sad that these other governments are figuring it out and in our kids in the U.S. are going to be left behind. How did you get passionate about writing your book? I really think the first trigger for me is a long, long time ago, and this is going to, again, make me sound old, but like I was working with a, a girl about nine years old, and back in the day, let's say 15 years ago or so, it happens now, nine-year-old girls cut on themselves. Mm. Uh, it's way too frequent, but back in the day, that didn't happen, mm-hmm. and I'm like, wow, what is going on with her? And I was seeing her because I'm a, a clinical psychologist in, in, in practice, and I was working with this girl and her family. And she was brought in because nine-year-old girls don't cut on themselves and so right. forth. But really what, what was happening was she and her family were telling me about this thing called MySpace and how her parents were sort of told to believe this is the place where kids should hang out. And this girl was spending her life on MySpace and profoundly disconnected from her family. And she got lonely. And so she started to cut and call out for help. I knew right away, you know, even way back when I was first starting out, let's say in the late 1990s or in early 2000s, just to see how many boys were getting lost to uh, video games and so forth. But to see this girl cut, and it really just told me I've got to shine a light for the families that I work with on the truth and what is really happening, because they are being told by this profoundly strong industry PR machine that this is the best thing for kids and this is where your kids should live when it's it's a lie. Wow. And parents really were stuck. And I was one of those parents that got really stuck. And why are parents stuck? It, it's the lie, right, that they're believing. But what are some other reasons, like even in that time frame back then, way back when you started first dealing with this, why were parents stuck then and why are they still stuck now? I think so much of the big message that parents hear around the world is is really from those who I, I know that people say that they're independent and objective and so forth, but they are industry funded. They can't be objective. They can't be independent. The, people just seem to be able to claim that they are. In any other profession, when you say you are independent, when you say you are objective, people actually hold you accountable. Oh, no, you're taking money from uh, the fast food industry. You're taking money from the soda industry. Therefore, you say you can't. You, you know you can't say that. But here, with respect to media and technology, people can seem to say whatever they want. Hmm. And so parents are really taken with that nice, smooth, slick. Your kids are going to be just fine on a smartphone. Video games are the secret to your kids uh, learning how to do strategy and all that message about hmm. your kid potentially getting addicted is just not true. So buy your kids this and put them in front. Meanwhile, back at our home uh, in Silicon Valley, amongst the tech elite who are often rich, white, wealthy, Mm -hmm. we're going to make sure our kids don't use this stuff. So parents really get caught up in that. And it's not their fault. They they are living amidst so many lies that are really just toxic, as you say, and tragic. And it's a lag because what the science is telling us and what we can barely eke out, right, in in the midst of all of the loud noise of all these other studies that the tech companies are funding, science will always still come to the top. It will eventually come to the top. We know that 
these platforms are very addictive for kids and, and adults, but specifically for kids as we talk about that today. But it's there's like this lag, like why didn't we know this 10 years ago? I mean, it's just like with smoking, you know, who would have thought that kids would have smoked, right? But we didn't know. And, and this is what I get so frustrated. And I try to kind of turn my frustration into some action over here to educate parents. But I remember the day probably, Richard, it was even when you and I first met that you couldn't really even say video game addiction, right? That was like a bad word. It was like, oh, come on, you don't know that. That's just your opinion. And it was just sort of people just cower to that. Now it, it's kind of mainstream. Like it's like everybody- the, world, the World Health Organization, the yeah. Un- yeah. unfortunately American psychiatry is just a little bit slow mm-hmm. um, in, in actually acknowledging the truth. But, and it's, it is a proposed diagnosis in the DSM, what mm-hmm. American psychiatry goes with. But really, it is truly an addiction that destroys our, our, our kids' lives. And I, and I love your comparison to smoking um, because I think where we are at right now is, as you said, that science will rise up to the top eventually and it's just got to push through. Yeah. But back in 19, in the 50s and the 60s, there was the Tobacco Industry Research Committee, which was, you know, uh, industry funded. We're going to protect you. We're going to keep you safe from cigarettes. We're going to tell you the truth, which was just a giant bed of sick lies, which kept the truth down. I kind of feel like we are pre-1964 when the surgeon, U.S. Surgeons General sort of came out and said, smoking causes cancer. And, it, and we're kind of like the the primary care doc in 1960. Two, let's say, trying to convince patients, hey, listen, let's not smoke because, you know, I'm really hearing that this is going to cause a cancer and heart disease. Uh, but people really were struggling to listen to you because they were really caught up on in those industry lies until at least 1964 right. and probably beyond that, you know, until the truth really came out. Kind of that's where we're at. And people are starting to wake up and Screen Strong is a big part of that. So thank you. Well, my goodness, uh, thank you for all the stuff and all the research that you're doing. And back to that smoking analogy, think about how popular it was to smoke. You know, every movie star smoked. It, there was a lot of peer pressure. Do you you remember, I might've talked to you about this when they, or another one of my tech friends about how they grew up with smoking patios at their school. Do you remember this? Like we catered to, teenagers that wanted to smoke, you know, it's so crazy when we look back at that. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen with all of this technology in the hands of our kids. I think we're going to look back not too far from now. We're going to look back and we're going to say, can you believe that we used to give kids smartphones? Oh my goodness. Do you remember that? Do you remember when we did that? <laughs> you know, just do you like when we used to give them to them in school, like <laughs> them. what's so sad is that, you know, research will show us that kids that go to private school, those private schools with, again, with a lot of sort of more affluent kids, those kids aren't allowed to use smartphones Mm -hmm. in school. It's Mm -hmm. kids in public school who do. The affluent are getting a different life than so many others. But yes, they understand it. And you're right. I went to, uh, back in my high school, they had a smoking section for, for kids. And that really 
you know, finally it, we, it dawned on people that you were promoting right. people would get started smoking at school. Yes. Schools are supposed to promote kids' health and well-being. And here we are saying here, kids, you know, be on a smartphone throughout your day, even though we know it causes depression, even though we, we know it's throwing you into a bunch of media that keep you from learning, even though we know it's distracting you from the teachers who actually you need to connect with. Those mm-hmm. teachers care about you. They're the people that you want to be talking to and say like, you know, oh, hello, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, I'd like to learn in your class. And I can't believe that, you know, kids at, at, at affluent private schools are, get to experience the, the real joy of learning because they are a, away from their smartphones throughout the day. Yeah, and that's really true. I do know a number of private schools across the country that, that are, you know, what I call toxic screen-free. Um, they have their laptops to do different things, but they don't allow those personal handheld devices in the school. And it, there is a disconnect there. It's wrong. I think that it's good that they're doing that. I think it's good that there are schools that are deciding and, and it's even more and more and more like every year there's more schools that are saying, you know, we're not going to allow this. Just like we don't allow kids to play video games in school. We're not going to allow the smartphones. When I started reading your, your book, of course, years ago, and then I have read it a couple of times since because I've gone through different book clubs with this book. I love how you start off and then go through the book with the myths. I love how you address the myths and um, it's all kind of through there. And, and I think the overview of the myths that you address are that families will be closer if they have technology, that kids will be smarter if they have technology, that kids will be happier, right? If they have technology and you go through all of those myths, you weave them so nicely into all the chapters. And then it just, the myth, they, they go on and on, right? There's a lot of them in here, but I want to start with even just the first chapter, build the strong family your child needs. So this whole idea of the myth that families will be closer and stronger, you really un, unpack that and refute that. And one of the things that that you come up with here in the beginning is this whole idea of the, the cutting that happens. I don't think I knew much about that till I met you. I just don't see it obviously day to day, even though since you and I've met and talked about all that, I do know kids that do this. I know parents that are just wringing their hands over it. But then in this chapter, you also talk about this, the mother's instinct, how to build routines, the importance of reading so let's talk about that just for a minute. And then I'm going to talk about the next chapter or, in, or I don't know if it's the next chapter, but it's something in here about schools. So let's talk about building strong families. Sure. I think, you know, you just hear parents say like, I want to be in touch with my kids. So I'm going to get them a smartphone. Like I need to be able to reach them. So it's an effort to, and parents are told like, oh, you'll better connect with your kid if you get them a smartphone and then get them a smartphone, watch them disappear uh, to a back room and you won't see your kid again. Right. Right. It's, it's tragic. It's sad. And then, Oh, and then the conflict that starts, you know, uh, we need you out for dinner. We'd like you to do some homework. And then, you know, I hate you, mom. You know, it, it is bringing a Trojan horse into your home that will cause you so much problems and so much conflict. And so there's two things that really drive the destructive and uh, elements of, of when we give kids smartphones. And I talked with uh, Dr. Jean Twenge about this, who I think recently just wrote an article. You know, she was really coming out in 2017. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to, her research really showing us what is happening with this 
giant group of this whole demographic of preteen and teen, especially girls, where we are seeing rates of depression that are epidemic. Yeah. We are seeing rates of cutting and suicidality um, that are epidemic. And that's what you live with in in clinical practice if you see kids. And it's just, it's changed because I've been around long enough just to watch that explode. And it's tragic and it's sad. And it's so much driven by technology, specifically smartphones and social media, as Dr. Twenge will tell us. And what happens is there are two primary effects when you give kids a smartphone. Um, number one is um, the content on there. You you put your kid into a a, a virtual world of, uh, of, of kids that are trying to raise each other. And that is the last thing that we want. <laughs> it is a Lord of the Flies. You know, kids go in there with the best of intentions, especially girls. Girls have an instinct to help one another and an instinct to connect and it's, it pains me to admit this, but girls have higher levels of social cognition than boys. They, they they understand all this, you know, social connections better. But then we throw them into this this environment that's badge filled, status conscious, sexy picture of who can show the most. You know, what's my body look like? And it, that content makes girls feel like crap, and they live their lives on that. And the second thing that really gets our kids and maybe even more like powerful than content is displacement. You give your kid a smartphone and watch your preteen and teen disappear to be pulled away from the family that they need most to live their lives in a back room, chatting with peers all the time to the drive that you used to have back and forth to school, to soccer practice, you know, that we need to go to grandma's house on, on Sunday, the drive that we all used to have. And we would talk about, things and life and laugh and sad things in our family and good things, that's all gone because your kid's on a smartphone getting pinged and uh, distracted distracted, and your kid really can't listen to you because they're just, if they're, even if they're not on their smartphone, they're waiting for, they're so worried that somebody hasn't texted them back and they really can't hear you. So that pulls kids away. And you know, I'm going to talk about this in my, in my second book, and I've talked about it in my first, but there is such powerful research. Uh, it doesn't matter if kids are white, black, straight, or gay. Mm-hmm. They're, and, and, and even when they're teens, when your kid is 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, your kid's number one connection in their life better be family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their second most important connection better be school. Right. And that's the institution of school and the caring educators there. And the research is clear. If kids have a overly strong connection with peers, sure, we want them. Oh, I got a few friends and all this. But if that peer connection starts to displace what should be most important, family and school, your kid's at risk. Mm-hmm. Your kid's at risk to act out. Oh, you know, well, he's hanging out with all the friends and they all started smoking pot. What's your kid going to do? More importantly today when we send kids off into social media and, and cutting and depressive kids is, are just normalized when you have even the, you know, there's this phenomenon that happens. Parents say like my kids, the mature kind of one in <laughs> yeah. the group, she's going to be okay. You right. know what that kid becomes? That kid is identified by all her peers as the mature one. So she becomes the fair, the quote unquote therapist for all these really troubled, mm-hmm. depressed kids uh who are suicidal and she's getting she's going to get texts at 11 o'clock at night saying uh, i'm thinking about killing myself 
um, I've had a really hard day. Like your kid is not meant to be doing that. So it, it's just, um, it's, it, uh, it, this, the combination of, of, of content and displacement and pulling kids away from family is that's what is going to lead girls predictably, just predictably to cut and to be depressed. And this is what you're seeing. You're on the front line, you're boots on the ground seeing this. And most parents don't see this initially. Of course, you know, we don't understand this. We, we don't, we're not seeing the ramifications every day and it just sort of happens over time. And it's sort of like this, you know, the water starts to boil and you, and you wake up one day and the FBI is knocking on your door, at, you know, at 2 a.m. because your daughter's in her bedroom texting some terrible text string back and forth to someone who's getting ready to commit suicide. I mean, the, you know, and then all of a sudden that's when you figure out that's probably when they call you, you they end up in your office. I, I love how your brain works, Richard, <laughs> because I love how you break this down to two things, family and school. And I have just figured that out anecdotally in my own life and working with families that school is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be really important. It's supposed to be like the number one, two, or three thing in your kid's life, right? But people don't understand that the lack of enjoyment of school is a huge red flag that there's something wrong with your kid. Yeah. And that dovetails into all the boys that I see who, and I I'll always ask them when I uh, am doing an, kind of a, an intake or a first appointment, you know, I ask kids, what do you think about school? To a person almost, the big gamer kids are going to say, it's boring. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. And gosh, is that such a red flag? And of course they don't like it because um, there's MRI research that and brain research that shows that video games triggered reward-based neurotransmitter dopamine at the same level as amphetamine. If your kid's immersed in that a lot, of course they're going to turn against school. Real life doesn't feel good. They are essentially a drug addict. Of course they can. And they start to lose the ability to enjoy real life. Of course they're going to turn against Math is hard, but so mm -hmm. now I hate it. Like, um, <laughs> I'm just going to get back on my game. Yeah, because the game is so easy. And all I do is hit the reset button when I can't, when I don't like something and I start over. And school is really hard. It, um, they have to use that grit muscle. They have to do things they don't like during a time when they're craving this low effort, high reward activity. And school is anything but that. I think that the other thing about school and just having four children myself go through these teenage years, I think the other thing that's so important that if you're listening today and you have little kids, really listen here. What's so important is that your children like school, but that they also learn how to like their teachers, respect their teachers, develop relationships with their teachers. And I'm not talking about, I don't think that teachers should be privately talking to your kids or texting them or doing anything like that. That's totally wrong. But what I'm talking about is this village that you're creating and this tribe that is happening in their life. And as the parent, you are the best person to determine who's allowed in and out of that village. And when you get good teachers that your kids can look up to and that can mentor your kids, your job just gets profoundly easier. Plus it creates this sense, uh, Richard, of attachment to a community 
And, and the attachment to the family, and I, I want to talk about that again here in a minute, because that was the first time when I read your book was when I first really understood this attachment problem in our culture, because I believe that screens, the underlining problem with all screens in kids is that it's a attachment, you know, or a detachment epidemic. That's the underlining problem. That's but, great. But when your kids are, when your kids don't have, you know, a good relationship with their teachers and authorities and other adults at their school, whether it's coaches and even the school administration and the, the gal that works in the front office. And, you know, when they don't have a good relationship with that, they feel more disconnected from their, their village and from their world. And that connection is a protective factor to keep them out of trouble. So when just, you know, when you're a boy or a girl in high school and you're getting ready to do something really dumb, you know, take a risky chance and smoke something, drink something, drive too fast. You know, you're going to be thinking, huh, Mr. Smith in math, he's going to find out about this. Miss so-and-so behind the desk in the morning, she's going to find out about it. You, you're all of a sudden, I'll have a lot more accountability. And, and that's from a teenage viewpoint, but from your perspective as a person who's there working with these kids every day, wouldn't you agree that that attachment is so strong? It can be so strong and it can just help a parent's job out a little bit. That's exactly what we need. And, and you know, I, I like to go back to 1850, Oklahoma frontier, you know, that's raising a kid back then. Like you did not need to reward your kid. Like we're going to give you this amount of this if you do that. Life was tough back then. And like we actually needed and that kind of, kind of representative of the the tough life that humans have lived for millions of years. And like if we went back there and you would go to your 10 year old and say, like, we need you to go into town, like walk two miles into town and bad weather and come back with these supplies. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. <laughs> do you need a little car carrot and a promise of video games when you get back. No. no, like what got a kid to do that was I understand that this is my family. This is what they need. Um, this is my community. I'm also attached to my community. When I walk there, I know all these people and they, you know, care about me. Like that's what we need to, to, to have kids be, uh, successful, not the promise of if you just get this done, we're going to give you some little video game carrot. Yeah. And in this whole community, we have to remember that when our kids are spending all this time on video games in their basement or hiding in their room, they're not interacting with the community at large. They're not reacting with your family friends. They're not react reacting and even hanging out with their extended family. And what I remember back in the recesses of my brain here, I don't know who I was talking to. It might've been Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, or it might've been another military guy. I can't remember, but we were talking about how in other countries and terrorist organizations and gang organizations that they do not allow any of those members to make friends with anyone in the community, because then they wouldn't be able to, to, bomb the community. Right. So that really stuck with me because I feel like that's really true in our gaming culture, that it's not just the content and what they're seeing and the violence and everything they're doing on the video game, but it's what is not happening. And what is not happening is they're not building these relationships with other people. And school is the most natural place to do it along, of course, with sports and other extracurricular activities, you, you know, because when you have a good relationship, it makes you think really hard about what you're, what you're doing. And you realize you're part of this bigger picture. 
yes, if you want to manipulate a generation of kids, go back to, um, and I totally agree with what you're saying, go back to communities and, and, and cultures that wanted, wanted to indoctrinate kids. And what they will do, and you'll see this in Nazi Germany, is you know, we're going to bring you into the Hitler youth We're going to, and, and the female equivalent of that as well. And all, all through the guise of empowerment, we're going to make your kid stronger. But really what we're doing is we're pulling your kid away from family and church and the institutions that actually help them grow up to be good people. So we, all in the name of empowerment, and that's what the tech industry does today, you know, we want kids to be empowered and to go off and use social media and to go off and be their own person on video games. No, that is a profound lie. We are trying to pull your kid away from your family, from school, from church, from the institutions that can guide them so we can profit from them, so we can guide them in our own way. Wow, that's really profound. It just kind of gives me chills because I just can't believe this is happening, even though, I, of course, I do believe it's happening, but it's so sad. It is so sad. And you'll all see it in the name of empowerment. Yeah. Turn, turn your kids loose with technology because that's what's going to make them strong. Meanwhile, uh, when you do turn them loose, we will put them on to, you know, we'll keep them all bottled up in our little virtual world and profit from them all day long. Yeah. And that is a bubble, a, a bottle. When you said bottled up that I really believe that I think that the myth is that you have to let your kids loose in this big virtual world so they cannot be helicoptered and over controlled and whatever. But really what's happening is, is just the opposite and they are being trapped in a, in, in the bubble. That is the bubble. The bubble isn't out here. <laughs> that is the bubble. And when they get trapped in that virtual bubble, they lose touch with everything in the real world. And it's very clear uh, what's disturbing is, and as you know, all the work that you've done really investigating the, the roots of where all this comes from, it's just so disturbing that we have so many people um, in our culture trying to tell us that it is okay. And you're right. They do use the term in the feeling of empowerment. And we're going to make your kids better. We're going to make them smarter. They're going to be um, you know, better than you, smarter than you. That's, that's a whole other thing. And we're helping, we're helping, we're helping when, when in reality, they're really getting their hands cuffed to their screens and they're losing touch with so many things in the real world. Children and teens are biologically programmed to seek direction, to, to look for people who, and you're right, they're a little bit biologically programmed to think that their parents are going to be, you know, starting in the, their teen years that think their parents are a little bit crazy, so they're not living with us when they're 35 and 45 years of age. But they, we, they still need their family as number one. And then the, if, if they are going to go out and seek other guidance, we want them to be finding that in a math professor that's going to guide them, sort of inspire them to go off and have a, a neat life or uh, a coach to you know help them not to go connect with a same age 11, 13-year-old kid who is has no investment in, in how that kid turns out and is just caught up in, in technology themselves. I think the most sad thing about the empowerment that is going on is the disrespect that comes with that, Richard, with children that are not dis that are not respecting their parents. And with that culture of disrespect comes this elevation of youth. 
And, uh, you know, we joke about being old and we joke about, you know, being young and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is there is this cult of youth. And I believe Leonard Sachs talks about that some. We're really fighting against this. Uh, We know that kids are not wise. We know that they are not experienced. We know they need parents. They need to stay attached to their parents. And then we, and we know that parents are just the opposite of all that. They are wise and they do know what their kids need. And I hate it that in our culture today, that we get so pushed down, you know, and trampled on by the media, the, all the screen media that's out there, and of course, all social media and, but then also our kids. And so, you know, it's part of the reason why Screen Strong is even here to help parents get their confidence back and, you know, really to get educated. And it's really in people like you that are so beautifully articulating this and your books. And um, I'm so excited for your second book to come out, but this first book is such a good starting point for parents. We have to understand what's happening because you know what, Richard, we don't get a redo. We don't get to try again. Yeah. uh, And poor teachers have to, you know, it's harder to be a teacher. Sure. If you are teaching the the tech elite, send their kids, they they raise their kids low tech. They send their kids to low tech schools uh, or zero tech schools. You know, Mark Zuckerberg went to Phillips Exeter, ranked number two in the country as far as high schools. And their primary teaching method is, is called Harkness. And that teaching method is 12 students sitting around a wooden table with one teacher and generally no technology. And those kids just have a discussion. That's where Zuckerberg went. That's where a lot of tech elite go. And in those places, not only are kids, you know, they're, they're coming from homes where they can better connect with their families. They're going to schools where they can better connect with their teachers. And that is helping these kids connect with the people and, and not engage in that culture of, of disrespect. And I agree with that with respect to Dr. Sachs, Dr. Leonard Sachs. That's such a, a great point of his. So many parents today say, what is happening with kids? Why are we, you know, what kind of rewards or punishments should I be giving my kid to help them be respectful? So many kids, this is a generation of kids that's disconnecting from the people that they, they, First, we need to sort of have them connect with us and love and respect and, and work alongside us. And then that, that, that culture of respect just comes naturally. Yeah. We don't have to like hold a little carrot out for them and say like, please be nice to, they just grow up knowing that. Well, and when you work together as a team, as a family, then you learn humility and right. humility is, if you have no humility in your life, then of course you have no respect. And I don't know yes. where kids are learning humility. Where do they learn it today? <laughs> they don't, you know, and there's also concerns just about the opposite happening that so much of the content on social media, and I would say video games too, is just so much about self-promotion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, look at me, you know, look how many, uh, how little clothes I'm, I'm, I'm wearing. Um, aren't, I, aren't, aren't I better than everyone else? You know, I, I, I need to somehow make a ton of money without really working for it. Right. Like, oh my gosh. it's Don't just so, that. The it, influencer it, it, it's world. so toxic. And, you know, mm. so much of that disconnection comes from this industry spun horrible myth, you know, digital native, digital immigrant myth, mm. which we still have today, which is your kid growing up with these technologies knows more about technology. Of course, my kids can get around, you know, certain devices better than I can, but they but but spun past that is your kid is therefore an expert in how to use it, 
how much they should use it, when they should use it. And you as a parent should just sit back and watch and learn from them. Mm-hmm. And it's so disempowering for parents. It tells them that you are supposed to play second fiddle to the lifetime activity that your kid spends in more time in than any other. If you want to destroy a generation of children, push that myth. That's mind boggling. I, I, that myth, you know, it's so sneaky because it, it really kind of cuts parents off, off guard, kind of cuts them off at the knees. Cause it's like, wow. Okay. So what it took me, you know, 20 minutes to learn how to do something uh, on the computer and it took my kid, you know, 10 minutes. So that makes them better. I don't think so. I remember the day that my 10,000 hour gamer is what Adam figured he had gamed all through high school, 10,000 hours worth of video games. I remember calling him upstairs one time to help me figure out something on my Outlook because my email wasn't working. He didn't even know what Outlook was. He didn't even, he's looking at me like I'm crazy. (laughs) So fat log, that did (laughs) for him to spend all those hours. And my point is, you know, they get good at what they want to get good at. They get good at their video games, but does that really transfer over to, you know, real life skills? No, it doesn't. I mean, even if kids want to be a video game designer, you need a, a generally a college degree. You know, take a look at your typical, oh, you know, your kid's going to learn to be an expert in technology by playing with video games and social no. media. No, 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 and no. Like, take a look at the resumes of the people who work in Silicon Valley, and they are not only graduating from college, but top colleges, meaning you need to do really well in high school. And you're not going to do really well in high school if you game a lot or on screens a lot. No, and you're not going to be balanced. And that's the key if your kid wants to be a game designer. And I, I'm, I'll talk about this later another date. But if your kid wants to be a game designer, they're going to have to know how to work with people, resolve conflict. They're going to have to know how to, to write storyboards and do music. They're going to have to know art. They're going to have to know how to play baseball because they're going to have to know how mechanics work when you're actually creating a game character. They have to know how the muscles work. It The list is so long and it's just like saying that uh, someone should be running the beer factory just because they get to drink beer all day. Like that doesn't help them run the beer factory. Melody, can I use that? I love that. Thank you. (laughs) Yes, you can. I'll I'll quote you. Yes, I feel very passionate about this, that I bought that myth myself early on because my son also said that he was going to be a game designer because every gamer does um, say they're going to be a game designer and that's their little dream. But they don't have any of the skills necessary to do that. Again, if you want to work at the Mars candy factory, you don't sit home and eat candy bars. You have to learn many, many other things. And most game designers are not addicted to their video games. They have a life, they have families. Otherwise they wouldn't be able to hold down jobs and the, the whole thing continues. So when you look at it, it's sort of like, um, Richard, it's kind of like the anchoring bias. You know, the first time you hear something tends to be what you believe. And that is such a big problem because that's what's happened in our culture with this issue. We have heard these little myths and we've heard, oh, my kid's going to get smarter and my family's going to be more connected and and my kid's going to be happier. And we hear all this stuff. And the first time we hear it, it sticks and it's really hard to reverse it. And that's what that's what our job is. And your book, again, I just love it, love it, love it. We're going to just spend a few more minutes here. And then in our next podcast, we're going to pick up with the rest of it. There are so many things we could talk about. But before we leave today, let's, I want to dive in a little bit to 
this idea of keeping your kids close. And I will just have to tell you that when I first read this in your book, this was the first time that this had ever dawned on me. So thank you very much. Um, And this became and has become the basis of all of our screen decisions in our house. And the question is, is this causing my kids to be closer to us as a family or further apart? And when you answer that question, you have a very clear answer. And so the quote in here in the book on page 149, it says, in contrast to the picture painted by popular culture, children's relationships with parents are more important to their health and welfare than their relationships with their peers. While many parents may believe that this is only true for young children, it's also true for preteens and teens. And after I read this, I got the book, Hold On To Your Kids. I got all those books out there. And of course, Leonard Sachs in his book, he talks about this a lot, about all the research around this. But the way that you pulled this out and made a point to say that parents believe, oh, this is true when your kids are young, but this really hit home for me when you said it's also true for preteens and teens, because I remember the day that I was standing in my driveway looking at my oldest son and he had just turned like 15 or something or 16 and, and he had, you know, a little mustache and he had hair all over his legs and he was taller than me. And I remember so clearly thinking that I was done. Okay. I know it's crazy. But I had this thought that I was done. Like he's an adult, right? He looks like one. So he, so I'm done now. And when I read your book, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not done. <laughs> he needs to still be attached to our family. And so talk about that and why it's important for teenagers versus just your little kids. Oh, it, that, that myth gets so many parents. Like, I know. you know, here's a, here's a depressed, cutting girl that maybe has been psychiatrically hospitalized because she really cut on herself or she really downed way too many pills. She's saying, I need my smartphone to connect with my friends because they make me happy. Kids don't understand. They, it, It's just like a drug addict saying, you know what I really need? I need another fix because that's going to that's gonna make me better. Kids don't understand. They are not in a place to be able to understand that what they're sold, what kids believe that, that their peers are supposed to make them happy is, is really what makes them happy. That is just a tremendous lie. So you'll see parents who've been convinced that their kids remarkably depressed and the kids saying, I need my even more smartphone time mm-hmm. to completely disappear because that's what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. And these kids just go down this really, really dark road because the, the internet is and, and social media is no place to have to raise a kid. No. It is a nasty, toxic environment. And there's, you know, people are going to want to hold up the the, the, the the giant myth machine is tech industry funded myth machine is going to want to hold up these particular one little incidents of, of like one, you know, yeah. one time this one kid in, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, in upper Alaska yeah. uh, did this and, and <laughs> like, it's, that's kind of like, you know, my grandpa, God rest his soul, 95, smoke and drink way too much, but live to 95. Yeah. So am I going to tell everybody now that just because my grandpa made it to 95 that you should, that you're supposed to smoke all your life? No. no. Like it's, it's like we don't hold, you actually have to look at real science. Parents know this stuff is, um, I think deep down in their hearts, like parents know they feel it in their hearts. Like I really should be connecting with my teen here. 
I know it. Gosh, it, it, it wrenches my soul that I've lost my kid, but oh, there's, I'm, I'm being told by popular culture that I'm supposed to turn him or her loose. Like, listen to your instincts. They are the same gosh darn thing that real science tells you. Your kids need you when they are like 15, 16, 17, 18. I would say even when they go to college, if they're going to college, when they are, when bad things happen and they, their roommate does bad things to them when they're 18 or 19 or they have a really crummy day and they fail a test, they should be picking up a phone and and calling you and saying, I had a really rough day. It is like a trash dump. That's what I call it. The city dump. So do we want to raise our kids in the city dump? Because if we do, we'll give them social media. And I'm, I, I make no bones about this. You can probably find something good in the city dump, Richard, if you look hard enough, right? So we can talk about how there's good things in the city dump. But the problem is most of the kids are going to pick up the bad stuff. And, and this is the way their brain is wired with all the novelty seeking, sensation seeking teens that you have a whole chapter about in here. And so you're really increasing the odds and the risk that your kids are going to get in trouble if they play in the city dump. I'm, I'm stealing your lines, Melanie. I will try to give you credit if I... Oh, you don't have to give me credit. <laughs> That's okay. I, I love that. And what's really hard right now and what puts our girls at particular risk is their change in biology that's happened since 1850. If we go back to 1850, girls' cycles would start at age 16. Mm-hmm. And if we look at that graph to modern times, it is just a downhill slide such that girls are starting their cycles at, let's say, some at 10, some at 11. And adolescence does two things. It gets you prepared to have a kid someday, but also it changes your emotions. It has you shift a little bit away from your family to engage with people outside your home. And that made sense in 1850 when you started adolescence, let's say that your cycle starts at 16, but adolescence would start at 14. You'd start to shift a little bit away from your family such that you know, when you're 17 or 18, you're kind of ready to, you know, I'm, I've, I've kind of got it together. I'm ready to kind of shift some a lot of my focus, even though I'm going to stay in touch with my family, but to people outside the home. Today, girls are hitting adolescence at eight and nine years old. Not their cycles, but they're, they're starting adolescence, like because that's going to come two years before their cycle starts. And that pushes them to look artificially outside of the home for connection. So they are, their biology is causing a, a really big trick on them or, or really deceiving them that your your peers are who you should be connecting with, that your parents are a little bit crazy. And that now starts at, at, at such an early age and it's so bad for girls. And so, and then we're going to throw kids today. Those social connections are found on social media, which is now starting for girls in elementary school, fourth and fifth grade. You're going to see girls on Instagram and, and, and Snapchat. And that combination of disconnecting from caring adults to go live a life amongst social, you know, mean girl syndrome is just profound. And that's what's going to cause girls to cut. And we need to so much push back the age when kids get phones. And what is your thought on pushing the age back for a smartphone? What, what age, what would you say? There, you know, the, the research is just abundantly clear. People are looking for what is the right age? You know, Dr. Twenge's research clearly tells us that when you give your teen a smartphone and she starts to spend more time on a phone and more time on social media, your teen will be at greater risk for depression. Mm-hmm. Your teen will be at greater risk for um, cutting. Mm-hmm. Your 
teen will be at greater risk for suicidality. We, as you said at the beginning of this podcast, we need to wake up and really see the truth. You know, it's not 14 or even 16 when it's the magic age to give your kid all the way through. Right. If you give a 16-year-old a phone, that will put, that will enter her in a greater risk category of kids. We are. This is early in the process, Melanie. You and I, and a few others, and a lot of understanding parents but not the majority are understanding this and it's going to be a while before we can get at the flip, but we need to really push back the age for smartphones. I would say as long as possible. And you'll see some kids really do that. You'll see some kids say, I don't need one. More and more kids are saying that. I mean, there's more organizations that are starting. We've interviewed these people on our podcast, these teenagers that have started organizations that are not getting smartphones and they're not getting social media. That's great. Let's at least start with the truth, which is even when a teen gets their, you know, people want to hear this magic age that they're going to feel guilt-free for, no, um, it's, we right. just need to really tell, tell you the truth. Like, it's sort of like, you know, what's the right age for your kid to sort of start smoking? Like, right. it's probably not question. any age. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Predictably, I'm sorry. I know society's telling you different. I know culture will tell you different. I understand that you have a, a societal push to get your kid a smartphone earlier. I can understand why you would do this earlier, but understand that we as a culture are putting our kids at risk by getting them at this time. Yeah. I say to delay it all the way through high school. Like I think a basic phone is fine. What are your thoughts on that? That sounds like the best way. So that you're, you're speaking as a parent and just to take a look at what happens in a public school as kids really are, are looking to get out of a class and not spend a little time connecting with the teacher. Kids used to, um, as, as Joe Clement and Matt Miles say in their book, Screen Schooled, kids used to stay after class. Yeah. Kids used to kind of eat lunch with teachers and there they would be socialized towards learning and I really want to go off to college and my teachers were quite amazing. Now kids, from the moment they are entering class and asked to put this ad- addictive device down that they're so stuck on, they are itching to get back to that at passing period, at lunch. So school isn't really school anymore. School is essentially uh, Instagram, Snapchat light. So parents have a responsibility and schools have a responsibility to put these away for kids all the way through, yes, through the end of high school. Both parents and teachers need together uh, need to come together to understand that. We're going to pick up with this when we meet again for our second podcast for our book of the month, uh, Wired Child. We're with Richard Freed, and this is going to be a perfect place to to pause here. And then we're going to also just pick up on this and finish the discussion about the solutions that you have, because you have time-tested, <laughs> um, perfect solutions as far as I'm concerned. And uh, meaning all that to say, they just really work. Just, just before we leave, I always ask my guests, I'm going to ask you this podcast and the next one. We have a lot of people listening today that are really struggling. I mean, they, they could have been up last night crying. They could have been having a fight, you know, the whole door slamming fight with their kids. What is just a tip? Can you give them a tip of encouragement for these parents? They're really trying to figure this out. I, I'm hoping that they can bring everybody, all the caring adults in, in that kid's life on board. Mom, ho- hopefully dad, uh, everybody be on the same page. Are there grandparents? Are there aunts? Are there uncles? 
and together you know what's best for your kid. Do not listen to pop culture myths. You know what's what's right for your kid. Come together in a community like Screen Strong to get help, to, to get answers, to come together with other parents who are sharing your struggles. And with that strength, you can move forward. That is so true. Oh, that's so helpful, Richard. Thank you so much. I love our time together and I love having all these discussions. And I'm so glad that you're here to share it with all of our community here. Thank you so much. Melanie, thank you so much to you and to Screen Strong for all you do. I hope that you all enjoyed listening today. Please share this podcast with your friends and increase your your Screen Strong village that we talked about today. If you've enjoyed the content, consider being a podcast sponsor and you can contact us at team at screenstrong.com for more information about that. We do depend on donations for 100% of our support to get this mission out and our message. And we will be introducing our Kids Brains and Screens course before the end of the year. So go to the website. You can join the wait list for that. We talked a little bit today about the Screen Strong Challenge, and that is something else that you can go to the website. And this will just help you um, get a kickstart on your digital detox with your kids. We mentioned the Screen Strong Families Facebook group as well. So if you have a question right now, today, like this moment, go over there to that group, and there will be many parents in there that can answer your questions. And I'm in there a lot and we have a lot of professionals in there. So remember, we've got your back and we are here to help you. So until next time, stand up for your kids, stand out from the crowd and stay strong.